0: It is good to see you all here this morning at Berean Bible Fellowship, and I know you have your Bible, so let's turn to the book of Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, and don't worry about John. I'm going to have you go back there in just a moment. But right now, Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to read one verse here, Matthew 26. And let me direct your attention down to verse number 8. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? So focus on the question as you see it there in Matthew. Similar, very similar in Mark's record of this. Now turn to John chapter 12, where we're going to be really and take our text for this morning. Verse number 5, I want to reread that verse. Here's the question as it appears here. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? So if we combine the thoughts, as the question is recorded in Matthew and Mark, the word waste being prominent there, and then the value being assigned to it with the question in verse 5, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? I'm just going to distill that down this morning so we have the benefit of of that process and title the message this morning, Why the Waste? Why the Waste? Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll look into this this morning. Father, we are thankful for this day you have given to us. We thank you, Father, for the gathering of the Lord's people. We thank you for the things that we've already experienced, both in the Sunday school hour and also here that we have experienced in the morning worship service. We thank you that we do know that you live. And thank you for the reminder of that in this great song and that each day as we give up, we know there are certainties and there are hopes that are real because of the truth of your uh, uh, your resurrection and the fact that you live in our hearts as well, and also the fact that you're coming again. So thank you for these great and marvelous truths. I pray, Father, that uh, what we have time to look at here in the Word of God this morning, what you have uh, given for today, uh, may our hearts be open. I pray that you will loose my lips, Lord, and just... Give me the ability to bring today's message in a, an unfettered, unhindered manner and in a way that brings honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And also, Lord, for each listener today, Lord, you, you only know where we are and what our needs are. We would especially and always want to pray if we have anybody in our midst today who doesn't know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, that, Lord, your voice would reach out to that person, awaken them to their lost estate, draw them to yourself. Pray, Father, also for God's people, that you would just give us what we need here today, Father, because even when we don't realize it, we're a tremendously needy people, we pour our hearts out to you now, praying that you will just come to us in our need, what we see, what we don't see, what's on our mind and what isn't. Speak to us in such a way that our Christian lives will be nourished and enriched. It will be bettered, better prepared for this new and coming week and also more like you. And I just pray you'll bless us now in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, it might interest you that we're using John's gospel this morning, but I've done that deliberately. As I said earlier, in calling your attention to Matthew chapter 26, you'll also find an account of this story. It's a well-known story in Mark chapter 14. Nothing in Luke, but then in John we have this rendition. And why it is that I've uh, selected John in particular this morning is, although there are some details that are uh, in some that are not in the others that sort of round out the thing, I really like John's presentation of this because John tends to focus more on the people, the actual people who are involved. And so, for example, if you'll notice verse number two, we have it mentioned here that it was Martha who served, and we don't hear that detail in uh, the other records. And then down a little bit later in the story, you'll notice the fact that the one who gives voice to this criticism is Judas, although the others are thinking it and perhaps murmuring it, It's Judas who uh, is prominent in the speaking here. Um, We do have a detail in the other stories that I don't believe the name is given to us here, and that is that there's another name that this gathering takes place in the house of a man whose name was Simon the leper. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? It's a bit of a rabbit trail, but you know, Matthew called himself Matthew the publican because he never forgot where he came from. And that's so important for us. And this man, who undoubtedly was not a leper at the time, but who had been a leper and who had met Jesus Christ, we don't have all of the details, but who had met Jesus Christ and who experienced his mercy and his cleansing from that leprosy, never forgot it, and became noted in the Christian church as the leper, simply because it was a record of what uh, God had done in his life. And so we have that, that detail over uh, in Matthew's presentation Uh, verse number one, actually, Uh, verse number three, they were assembled together. It says, uh, I'm sorry, verse number six now, when they were in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. So these things are all very interesting. And I'll tell you, um, I don't think it's a waste of time to call your attention to this because uh, there is a whole lot to be gained by studying these people and realizing their Christian experience. Sometimes we have more details than others. But in any event, we need to get to our story for today. Why the waste? I think that's the best summary we can give, really, of the question. And this is one in the series now of uh, our morning topic of they asked him this. And we've seen a lot of these. Sometimes they come from people uh, just from common folk in all walks of life. A lot of them we've seen have come from Jesus' detractors, his opponents. Uh, We see probably the greatest uh, grouping of them coming from the disciples. And that's actually the case here. It's actually the disciples... And Judas in particular, by the way, Judas is known here. So a little back to that detail I was talking about a moment ago. Do you notice how John is careful to point out Judas because there were more than one by that name? But this was the traitor. And that's how he will also be remembered through eternity as well. So you have that detail in the passage. But this is an interesting story. Kind of interesting, I find, that uh, a story that has at times been used to promote charity I think about that subject for a moment. It comes from verse number five in particular when the disciples, Judas, is asking the question here, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? And so sometimes that verse has been used in kind of, I think, an unknowing way and really not a way that's truly reflective of what's going on in the story to promote charity. There's certainly nothing wrong with charity. Certainly nothing wrong with charity. And uh, in fact, our Lord mentions the fact you have the poor with you always and whenever you desire you can do good to them and we should do good to all men especially those who are of the household of faith and many times that type of thing opens doors for the gospel so i'm not downplaying it jesus didn't downplaying it i'm just saying that's not really the main point that's here really the main point that's here is a selfless it's the record of a it's the story it's the record of a selfless devotion which was expressed on the part of Mary, whose name is given to us here as the one who does this, whereas in the other accounts, it's just a woman having an alabaster box, no name given. John gives the name. And he also tells about her sister, Martha, who was serving. So we also have the name of her brother, and he was also there on this occasion, though this supper was not held in their home. It was held in the home of Simon the leper. But the three are there, The three from Bethany, the three that Jesus seemed to have such a place of closeness and fondness in his heart for. And Mary is presented to us here as the worshiper. And that's so often the way we see her characterized in scripture. You remember Luke chapter 10, where you get to the end of the chapter, and it talks about the fact that Jesus went to a supper at their house, the Mary and Martha house. And Martha was cumbered about with much care, serving. Got caught up in the serving of the thing. Where was Mary? At his feet, listening to his word. And so Mary, it seems like always when we see a picture of Mary in the scripture, she's a picture to us of worship and devotion, and that's what comes across here. It's it's the record, it's the story of selfless devotion, which no matter what the human opinion of that may be, because there's criticism of that here in this text, nevertheless is always commended by God. And that's what I hope you're going to see in this message this morning, and that I'm going to, by God's grace, try to convey to you this morning. We're going to look down through three thoughts about this selfless devotion, and the first of them is cost. It really shouldn't surprise anyone here this morning that devotion has a cost. Devotion to anything has a cost. If you're going to be an accomplished piano player, it has a cost. If you are going to be an accomplished, devoted disciple of Jesus Christ, there is some cost that's attached to that. In fact, I think people know that better than we think they know that, and I think that's why we don't have more people who are as devoted to Christ as the picture that we find here of Mary is. I think we shy away from that cost. But in any case, we have a... An example of this held up before us this morning that I hope will be an inspiration. I never come to this story, but what my heart is just, I just feel, I feel like I'm an inch tall in the presence of this woman. I feel like if she's a dollar, I'm five cents. And I hope by God's grace that we can come away with some semblance of that here today. This devotion is pure, just like the nard. Do you notice that when we have the description of what it is that Mary brings in verse number three, it says, a pound of ointment of spikenard. So you can have the longer form spikenard, or you can simply call it nard. Nard is a, is a perfume. It's an essential oil. It, it just intrigues me. I have spent no end of pondering the ramifications of the fact that this was in the possession of Mary because... If you know anything about essential oils, you know that good ones, the really good ones, are not cheap. I'm just looking to see if I have any people nodding. But I can tell you this, nard comes from a plant that's not indigenous to Palestine. So how would this come into Mary's possession? Well, even in the Old Testament, we read of those Ishmaelites who were coming in and they they traded in spices. It's not a spice, but it's a perfume, it's a liquid, it's an oil that comes from the, the nard plant. But the plant would be indigenous to China, Eesh, that's a long way from Palestine, Nepal, or India. And so when you think about someone who would be in the possession of, it says here a pound, but you really would, This is this is not the English pound as you're thinking about this word, in the original language, the Greek, litra, is a a liquid measurement, and this would come out because it was a liquid, and this would come out to something around a little bit less than 12 ounces. What I'm at, before I forget with all these other details to make my point about this devotion being pure, was it's interesting to notice that for whatever reason, I don't know what that reason is, and, and please don't misunderstand this as a a comment that's disparaging. And it's, if you go that way, you've totally misunderstood what I'm saying. What has always puzzled me is why the translators don't see fit to bring out that thought in the translation. Because when you look at this expression as it's given to us in the original, it's pure nard. Pistacase is the word that's an adjective that modifies the nard. Pure nard. Let me try to illustrate for you what that really means and what bearing it has on what's going on right here. Pistike, pistos in Greek is faithful, pistuo is to believe. So pistike that's an adjective that means pure. In other words, if if I were looking to 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 communicate this to a modern English audience, and maybe I would furnish this as a marginal reading or maybe even in a note about pistike because I would I would be very tempted to offer the alternate translation of uncut. Now think about perfume that you get at the store. Is it uncut? No. No, there's a carrier for that perfume, and it's largely alcohol content. You don't drink it, of course, but I mean, there has to be a carrier for that, right? And sometimes perfume is very, very expensive, but it's not uncut. And then we think about something else. We think about the fact that this is a, maybe a, an illustration from the seedier side of life, but what do they do with drugs in order to make them go further and to make more money? They cut them. If you get something that's uncut, then you've got something that has a whole lot more value than something that's been cut. But you see, what's going on in here is the, the quality of what it is that's in her possession is pure, it's uncut which makes it all the more valuable. But it also has an application as to what it represents about her devotion, because it's uncut. Beloved, it's untainted. It's unsullied. It's not mixed with anything else. It's absolutely pure. That's a standard to look up to. And then we're told that it was worth 300 pence that detail is the clincher. If you're looking for the word cost, you'll find it in verse number three because it says very costly. That's an understatement. Because to have this in her possession, roughly 12 ounces of this, and Judah seems to recognize right away, the others seem to recognize right away too. They throw out the figure 300 pence. Well, the word pence here is, in the original, the word denarius, and we've talked about this before. If you go to the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, the denarius was what a person would work for a day. That was like a the laboring man's wage for the day. 300 days, take the Sabbaths out from 365, take out a few more days for holy days, holidays, whatever you want to call them, and you're right at talking about that this that she has in her possession is roughly worth what the the average person would earn in a year. The average laborer would earn in a year. Now here's a humble woman from a humble place. And how is it that she has this in her possession? And by the way, here's another thing that's kind of interesting. It's, It's always been a curiosity to me. I suppose there's a story, if you would go back and study Uh, what happened at the time but when the translators translated this and were given the way they rendered it in Matthew and Mark they talked about a box an alabaster box but you really don't put liquid in a box do you you put it in a flask so now you can think in terms of what you would be used to with perfume today she's got a flask and it probably is something that has a, a, a neck, a thin neck that comes up from the reservoir of the flask below. So that when you want to access that, especially if you want to access the entire quantity of it, or if you want to, you're ready now to, to, to use it, you can gain quick access to that by simply taking the neck of that flask and quickly breaking it. That's what she has. It's a, it's a treasure. How would a simple woman from a humble place have something like that in her possession? And we're not told. Does it represent life savings? What was she thinking of using it for? We're not told any of that. We're just told what she does end up using it for. But you see, when we talk about the cost of devotion, there's two things going on here, one of which I've taken great pains to, to try to point out. There's the worth of the thing that we give to God, But there's more than that, really. And this is where I think Mary just stands out in a way that's so convicting, at least to me. And that is the pure abandon, the selflessness that's here. Because we're told in this story that she anoints the feet of Jesus. And dries them with her, what? Her hair. Now that is really interesting because... The way Matthew and Mark tell the story, they mention the head. John doesn't mention the head, but mentions the feet. Now, let's think about something else again. So you're going to take something that's this valuable. You're going to walk in quietly unannounced. And you're going to take that flask and just quietly, with no fanfare, no attention drawn to yourself, break it walk up to the head of Jesus and begin to pour some on his head. And then, whether she poured some anywhere else, we do not know, but she's made her way now down to his feet, upon which she empties the remaining contents of this flask and then takes her hair in order to dry it off. And I think to myself, what kind of hair did she have? certainly not short hair. I'm not saying short hair is wrong. I'm just saying certainly not short hair for her to be able to do that. At the minimum, her hair had to be shoulder length and very possibly it was longer than that. Maybe it reached to the middle of her back. Maybe she didn't always wear it down, but in this particular case, whatever the situation is, that hair becomes available. And she takes that luxurious hair now, you ask any woman that cares for her hair, particularly if you have a lot of it in length, you think about what kind of time goes into properly grooming that hair, keeping it free of tangles and keeping it in a wearable condition and clean. And You think about that hair that she must have spent a lot of time, not in vanity, but just the time that required not to look like a, a bum. And she takes that hair and she... 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 15 says that the hair represents a woman's, you know what? Glory. And it's as if she doesn't care. She doesn't care what other people around think. She's totally lost totally lost in this act of selfless devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. So caught up in her love for him. So caught up in her heart for him and in her realization of what is going to happen. That what people say and what people think doesn't even matter anymore. And I want to think to myself and i want to say to you this morning see that's a big problem you have to first of all get past what the thing that god wants you to give him costs but then you have to oftentimes get past yourself because how many times are we held back in the things that god wants us to do because we are so worried about what other people think years and years ago i came to love a poem I actually heard this poem recited by its author. Bob Jones, Jr. wrote this poem. The second stanza of the poem uses this particular story as its backdrop, but the broader theme in the title of the poem is Broken Things. I want to share it with you. Five broken loaves beside the sea and thousands fed as thy hand and Lord in breaking blessed the bread. Men with the throng and emptiness have sent away whose need was met with broken bread that day. A broken vase of priceless worth, rich fragrance shed in ointment, poured in worship on thy head. A lovely thing, all shattered thus. What waste, they thought, but Mary's deed of love thy blessing brought a broken form upon the cross and souls set free. Thy anguish there has paid the price for me. Sin's awful price and riven flesh and pain and blood, redemption's cost the broken lamb of God. Break thou my life if needs must be. It is not mine. I give it now to thee. Break thou my will, my offering take, for blessing comes when thou my life doth break. Cost. Inevitably, it's followed by criticism, which is our second thought. Just figure it out. Just mark it down. If you decide to walk this path, there will be many people who do not understand. There will be many people unsaved people because they just have absolutely no thought, no clue why it is that you would want to give your life or give this or give that to Jesus Christ when this world seems to have so much to offer. Why would you want to give your life to Christian service? Why would you want to be in church on Sunday when you could go here or go there? Just get used to it. In one form or another, it's there. It's there from unsaved people who don't understand I've told you the story before of William Borden, and I just wanna remind you of the details of it this morning because what a, what a great illustration of this whole idea that we're talking about now it makes. You know, that William Borden would have been the heir to the, the famous Borden dairy estate. Graduated from a Chicago high school when he was 16 years old. As a graduation present, his parents, this was 1904, His parents gave him a trip around the world. It was quite a graduation present from high school, isn't it? Before this trip, though, Borden had come under the influence of D.L. Moody and had become a Christian. When he took that trip, he journeyed to, to faraway places, he journeyed to Europe, he journeyed to the Middle East, he journeyed to China and Asia, those places. And all of a sudden, God spoke to his heart. God spoke to his heart about the needy people around the world who didn't have Christ. And God spoke to his heart about giving his life as a missionary. William Borden wrote home a letter to his parents to describe that. And immediately, one of his friends, his reaction was throwing his wife away as a missionary. Why would he want to throw his life away as a missionary? Well, he came back from the trip. He went to Yale for his college work. But because he was desirous of serving the Lord, he went on to Princeton for his theological training. When he graduated from Princeton, he set off. And when he set off, his ultimate destiny was to reach the Muslim population of China. But he realized that to really reach the Muslim population of China, he needed to know Arabic. And so he stopped in Egypt in order to learn Arabic. He's 25 years old. And within a month of being in Egypt to learn Arabic, he's dead of meningitis. For as fast as news can travel in those days, it was like electric. The news that William Borden was dead at 25. It came back to America. People thought it was a tragedy. But you know, God tends to have a way of knowing better than human reasoning and human thinking. This is 1913. William Borden is dead a little more than 40 years later, there would be five that people thought the same thing about. There would be Jim Elliott and Nate Said and Roger Yadarian and the other two that went to the jungles of Ecuador to reach a people that no one had ever reached before, the Wayarani. They died there. People thought that was a tragedy. People thought that was a waste too. But you know what? In both cases, God knew exactly what he was doing because he took those lives, those stories of people who seemed to have given their lives and all it was was a waste and used it to galvanize and call hundreds and hundreds of young people into missionary service whose aggregate work in the course of life I am sure God knew, accomplished far more than those individuals could have ever accomplished with their one life. Criticism. It comes sometimes from unsaved people, as it did in the case of William Borden, but sometimes, unfortunately, it comes from Christians, and that's really what's going on here, because it's the disciples, you see. These are not unsaved people, except for Judas, So I suppose in that sense, you could say that both are represented, but in the fact that the others murmur and join in with this criticism, it comes there, and beloved, see, the thing of it is, they only condemn themselves because all they are really doing is revealing the shallowness of their own commitment. They're embarrassed. They're embarrassed in the presence of someone like Mary, and when they're embarrassed at the devotion and dedication of someone else, the quickest way to cover for that is to criticize and call it a waste. It doesn't make any sense. The money could have been better spent on the missionaries. I'm certainly not saying missionaries aren't important. I'm just telling you I've heard that so many times. Could have been given to the poor, they said, but the real problem is that, like Ananias and Sapphira, they hold back. Their devotion is not pure. It's not uncut. It's sullied. It's partial. It's not totally genuine, totally full, totally real. It's partial. One has to pause for only a moment to realize how true this is when you ask yourself this question if Judas who is highlighted in the story here who spoke and John sees the hypocrisy later and points it out not because he cared for the poor would those same people who always tell you well the money could have been better spent over here if they had the money spend it over there Had Judas had something worth 300 pence, would he have given it to Jesus? At this point in his life, would Peter? Would John? I don't know. I can't answer that question. I only know that Mary is miles ahead of them at this point, which I'll point out in a few moments when we get to that in the sermon. In her perception of what's going on, she's miles beyond Peter and John. So I can't answer that. But I can say that in most cases, people who lodge those criticisms do so because they're embarrassed. Had they been in possession of that gift, they would never have given it in the way that they tell you that it would have been better spent doing. But at the end, we see a commendation because you see, as I said at the very beginning of the service, this type of devotion, however misunderstood and criticized by people, always pleases God And God will be one day there, Jesus will be one day there, if people in this world never do, he will be one day there to call attention to it himself and reward us with the commendation. Just look how that happens here. My, how quickly he runs to her defense. Look at verse number 7. Then said Jesus, let her alone. I like that. Just leave her alone. I like that. He's talking to Judas and the other disciples. Let her alone. She shows more spiritual perception than you do. This is what I was talking about a moment ago. Why am I saying this? Because Jesus says that this anointing that she did was in reference to his burying. Verse number 7, then said Jesus, let her alone against the day of my burying has she kept this. The other accounts tell us that she was anointing him in view of his burial. But you see, the others had no heart for this. And I offer you many examples, or we could offer many examples or verses, but I offer you this morning just one. In Luke chapter 9, and you don't have to turn to it, I just want to read this. You see, they had no heart for that. Peter, the others that have the big names. When Jesus spoke to them about his death, When Jesus spoke to them about going to Jerusalem on a mission to suffer and die. And to be mishandled and betrayed into the hands of sinful men. They had no interest in that. They had no heart for that. They had no perception of what that meant. Luke chapter 9 verse 44 Let these sayings sink down deep, Jesus said to them in your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not his saying, and it was hid from them that they perceived it not, and they were afraid to ask him of that saying. When he spoke the first time of it, it was Peter who objected, remember? We have that story in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus spoke of going to Jerusalem, being betrayed into the hands of sinful men. Peter laid hands on him and began to rebuke him. Oh, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. What's the problem? The problem was it didn't fit with Peter's idea of what they were giving themselves to. He'd left his fishing business, and he wasn't doing that for somebody who was going to be lost and hung on a tree. He was doing that for the glory of the kingdom. Oh, don't worry. He would one day come to the same perception as would John and as would all the others. John would come to it sooner. John was maybe earlier. You remember that story in John chapter 20 about when he walked into the grave. Peter didn't get it yet, but John did. They would grow into this, but Mary had it now. She saw the cross coming. She heard what he said. She listened to it. She didn't put it away because it didn't have any resonance with what she wanted oh no when she came to really understood that stand that it represented redemption that it that it represented the love of god that it represented the most god can do for a guilty lost sinner and sending his son to die on the cross of calvary that resonated and what could she do she had this gift She's apparently thought about this ahead of time because this is not in her house. It's not as if in a flash she gets the inspiration. She's not in her house where she can go into a room and grab the flask. She obviously has thought about this. This has dawned on her spiritual consciousness because God has revealed it to her. And to whom does God reveal that? The worshiper. The person who's at his feet listening to his word. The person who has a heart, a deep heart. She knows. Now it makes a whole lot more sense when you realize that Matthew and Mark tells us she anointed his head, John tells us she anointed his feet. Well, you've got his body, figuratively speaking, covered with this. In a similar way to the Jews' custom to bury, but they used spices, didn't embalm. Their embalming was not like today. And she's got it covered. And Jesus defends her because she's got this spiritual perception. She's dead on the money, knows exactly what she's doing. And all these shallow Christians around that have nothing but criticism for her, they're wrong. Let's turn to Mark chapter 14 because I want to pick up two quick thoughts from there about the other things that Jesus says some of which are preserved by Mark's account. Mark chapter 14, I think it's better that we turn so you're looking right at the verse. Here's something else Jesus says. Verse 8, she hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the bearing. I'm telling you, beloved, that verse right there, that phrase right there, she hath done what she could. You'd be surprised how many a sermon's been preached from that text. She hath done what she could. That's not a put down. That's an accolade. Because you see the point that we get from this and the point that we understand from this is that we're not responsible for what we can't do or what we don't have. What someone else can do is not necessarily what you can do. And the story points that out because what is it that Simon the leper has to offer? He offers it. He has a house. What is it that Mary can, that that Martha can offer? She has a gift to serve, so she serves. What is it that Mary can offer? She has a heart, and she has something that will adequately reflect the depths of her heart, and she gives it all. She hath done what she could. What God put on her heart by revealing that insight to her that this was something that would be commemorative this was something another lesson that they would all go back and look at and remember and feel ashamed of themselves because they didn't see it themselves when jesus had told them so many times his death his burial and ultimately his resurrection there's nothing that means more to a christian except perhaps who would say he's coming again She hath done what she could. And then we read the last. Look down in verse number 9. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Think about that. Something that happens in an out-of-the-way place in a little room with only a handful of people. This incident is known only to a handful of people, whoever is gathered at that meal that evening. This is actually the Sunday of Holy Week. This is actually the Sunday of the triumphal entry that this happens, six days before Passover, it says. Just a handful in that room And yet you can really narrow it down even more because the real significance of what she does is really only known to two people. The disciples don't get it. It's between Mary and Jesus. They're the only two that really know. But in the broad human terms, only a handful more even know about this. I ask you this, is that true today? No. It's not true today. In fact, this deed became so noteworthy in the mind of God who gave her that insight and led her to do that that day that it's not only recorded in three of the four Gospels, but Jesus adds this statement, wherever my story goes, wherever my gospel goes, this will be heralded. This will be told. This will be preached about. I'm standing here today in partial fulfillment of that. And so... Many of us can readily identify at least with this. We're humble people. Not many people really know that in Unionville, Pennsylvania this morning, a relatively small group of people gathers around the name of Jesus Christ. No article will appear in the paper no headline will be captured because we were here this morning or even because we went home and this week opened our Bibles and prayed and read and interceded on behalf of others. No one will know, no one will care that somewhere out in the highways and byways of life you stop along the way to speak a word in season to someone that you believe needs Jesus or to whom you give a gospel track. No one will know. No one will give you credit for it. It'll all just be lost except that, like the tears we heard about in Sunday school, God captures them in his bottle. They aren't lost to him, brother. He has a record of every single one ever shed on his behalf. He has a record of even a cup of cold water given in his name. And what's more, he's coming again. And if none of that is ever acknowledged in this life, it will be acknowledged then. Because he said in Revelation 22 in verse 12, Behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give to every man according as his work shall be. And there will be a day, no matter the criticism that you've suffered in this life because of people who threw your name out, as foolish because you sacrificed and lived for Jesus, or even Christians that didn't understand and thought that, oh, well, you know him. Oh, well, you know her. No, he knows. He knows, he sees, and one day he will call it out, not in an ostentatious way, but in a way that will bring honor and glory to himself. Close with a little story. A Baptist pastor and evangelist of the last century by the name of A.C. Dixon used to tell this story. It's the story of a poor German woman that lived in the latter part of the 19th century. She, there in Germany, was the wife of a poor farmer. There are a lot of similarities between this story and the old time South and the Negro slaves, the field hands that would go out into the field. Somehow, this woman, just like those folks, somehow this woman had a particular heart, had a particular empathy for the people around her, for the sufferings and hardships of life, for the difficulties that they faced day after day laboring in those fields, known to the outside world by no one because their situation in life hardly gave them any even understanding of what was going on around them, much less anybody else knowing or caring about them. But because this woman had such a sensitive heart and God had somehow given to her the soul of a poet, she would write verses about this, about these experiences. If you know anything about the old time Negroes, that was true there too, those spirituals. No one can tell it like that. Somehow, inexplicably, one day, some of those, that verse, those verses, made their way onto paper, and they actually found their way to the empress of Germany. She read it. Her heart was so touched by those words that she set out on a mission to figure out who it was that wrote those words. She wanted to know. Finally, they tracked this woman down. Her name was Joanna Ambrosius. Finally, they tracked her down. Finally, they found her. And when the wife of the empress, the empress, the wife of the emperor met this woman, she was so impressed and she had so much esteem for her story that she not only gave her a pension for life, but she gave her an immediate supply of her needs. Well, I'm telling you something, people in this world may not care, but God knows he doesn't have to track it down because he's already written it down. Every single deed in one day, when he comes, when he comes. I would encourage you this morning to think about that. Think about devotion. Think about where yours is and how we can be challenged by this story this morning, whether our devotion is uncut, whether it's pure, whether we mix it with other motives or decrease its worth by a lack of fully giving ourselves, or whether we're concerned about other people and haven't made ourselves of no reputation just as the Savior did, so Mary did. the tables will be turned in glory. The people who didn't understand here, the people who criticized here, all of those words will be totally forgotten and fall to the ground. But they that win many to righteousness shall shine as the stars of the firmament forever. Father, would you encourage and bless us today as we think about this example of Mary? I don't know how the folk feel here this morning, but I can never think about this. I can never talk about this without just sensing such a lack. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to each of us if there's some particular thing, some area of our lives in which the message has spoken to us today, something that you want us to do in response, because we can sense clearly the Spirit of God squeezing our hearts revealing to us our shallowness, a lack of commitment, then if that's the case, if there's some area that you would have us to surrender to you, if there's some act of devotion that you are leading us to that is beyond where we are now, give us the grace, dear Father, to acknowledge that you're speaking to us, to be willing to talk to you, to be willing to tell you that Not only the cost of the thing that you want, but ourselves also. It's for you. We give it all and pray that you will...